Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is bass player Luis Espaillat. Luis is a multifaceted bassist and musician whose career has spanned many genres and has taken him around the world. His unique sound can be heard in all forms of media from shows on network television, such as Smallville and King of the Hill, major motion pictures including SWAT and American Wedding, and even video games like Need for Speed, Hot Pursuit 2, and Project Gotham Racing. In the studio, Luis has recorded with country legends like Michael Martin Murphy and Billboard Top 20 hard rock acts like Eve to Adam. Live, Luis has performed with country stars Trace Atkins, Jamie O'Neill, Jimmy Wayne, Lindsey L., Jake Owen, Terry Clark, Pam Tillis, James Otto, Tanya Tucker, and Doc Walker. Rockers such as Tantric and Bo Bice, progressive instrumentalists like Jimmy Highland, and even artists that defy normal conventions such as country rapper Colt Ford, just to name a few. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. This always helps us grow. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project, there's a way that you can help, and there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean, a free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash workingdrummer. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. So let's get to this. Here is my conversation with bass player Luis Espaillat. Because this is the Working Drummer yes. podcast, I want to get into your perspective as a bass player and the people that you've worked with. And I have got a lot of questions that are pertaining to, or ideas that I want to cover pertaining to your work with drummers and your perspective as a bass player. But I want to make sure that listeners know who you are for those that don't know who you are and kind of what you're doing 
right now mm-hmm. and what you've been doing. So uh, what's going on this year? I know you're, uh, you've been working with Trace Adkins for mm-hmm. about three years now. That's correct. Um, is that, and we discussed the other day at the Nashville Drummer Jam, that that's been a thing for you. It's been a nice kind of weekend warrior thing, but he's kind of ramped up his schedule. But you're balancing that. So can tell us a little bit about what this year's been like? Because we're in December right now, man, 2017. Yeah, this year's flown by. Yeah. Um, well, the, the I've been doing live dates with Trace Atkins now, like you said, for uh, this is wrapping up my my third full year, I guess, technically. <laughs> um, the great thing about him is that he's uh, at a very good point in his career where he can kind of call the shots as far as like where he's going to play, how much he wants to play, and, <laughs> and specific all those yeah, things. Yeah, I believe it. And, uh, and he's a multitasking guy. He does. He's an actor as well. Uh, he does voiceover work, so he's been in movies, uh, TV stuff as well. So mm-hmm. he's he's juggling a lot of things as well yeah. in his career. Uh, but as far as uh, what I'm doing with him is just doing a lot of the live shows. Um, this year was a particularly busy year for him as far as live work. I mean, we we did just over 80 shows this year, which oh, is, that's is impressive. Which for him is is impressive, and it's it's usually a lot less than that. Um, yeah. The last couple of years were a healthy amount but not to the point where you're like, oh my God, I'm never home. Uh, this year, just p- particularly busy. So uh, we wrapped up the last batch of dates with him on uh, the first weekend of November. Okay. And we're off for, for a little bit now. Uh, he's got a couple things in the hopper he's doing. Uh, plus, he's going to go out in February with uh, Blake Shelton, but mm. he's going as a special guest. He's not taking the full band. Oh, okay. uh, it's a, And I, I feel bad I should know who else is on the bill, but it's like a four-act bill. And Blake headlining and and Trace kind of being like the direct support, if you will. But really, in actuality, he's a special guest um, with that. Uh, so we're not going to go do those with him. Might be the the new shape of things to come, you know, with live music, you know, because that's such a as the music industry changes and you know live music becomes more lucrative, and yet large concerts with one artist, it hasn't been as lucrative. You know, oh, they've yeah. put together festivals and things like that. It's, it's, this might be a new thing. And, and I know Blake has just been blowing up the last five, six years. Oh, sure. For sure. Well, the, um, I think that there, I saw that trend happen as early as the early nineties though. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember or not, but like around 91, um, all of a sudden the concert industry took a nosedive like oh, they weren't selling as many tickets there's a big report i remember even watching like mtv news and they're like hey so-and-so's headlining the arena remember and like man he's not half half fold rooms i think it was part of part and parcel of the economy yeah but that industry just took a bath and so that's when we saw the resurgence or the birth of these huge festivals right so now we've got festivals all over the joint that's but true. you know they weren't as prevalent yeah Lollapalooza you know, started r- r- exactly yeah. Lollapalooza was one of the you know they started all these uh warp tour all those yes big yeah. rock festivals start yeah. around that time yeah. and um kind of to help do that and maybe we're seeing some of that now but i mean there's still already that are going strong and mm-hmm. and even playing with Trace. I mean, anytime we play, it's usually a, a really good turnout. I mean, very rarely it's kind of mm-hmm. like, well, it's not that good. You know, it's always it's it's usually pretty healthy. Right, such an established artist too for, for exactly many years. Well, tell me, um, uh, uh, is there other live stuff that you're doing on a consistent basis, or is it pickup stuff throughout the year? It's usually pickup stuff as far as the live thing goes mm-hmm. uh, outside of Trace, and this is just going back to this year and maybe the year before, mm-hmm. kind of comparing notes on that. Uh, I've done a couple live shows with Chris Carmack, who's uh, one of the stars of the TV show Nashville. Okay, uh, he plays the character Will Lexington, okay. and you you know, all those guys from that TV show, they've gone as a package themselves. 
right. called Nashville Live, and right. they've even toured over in England and done very, very well. Uh, oddly enough, they take a Canadian band with them, uh, which, I mean, I know all those guys, it's Blacking the Rodeo Kings, Johnny Diamond, and those guys who oh, okay. are legendary guys who've played with, like, you know, Katie Lang and stuff like that. And they're, yeah, they're fantastic, yeah. but it's that crew. So, uh, and then when those guys split off to do their solo thing, they've got their own thing. Like Chip Eston uses the guys in six wire right. uh, all the time, right. you know, and then uh, Chris will sometimes partner up with Chip and they'll both use six wire. But when Chris does a solo thing, he's put together this little hodgepodge, which is usually like um, me and Matt Heasley on keyboards and, um, Rob Mitchell on drums usually with him. So Rob will come out and do it yeah. uh, when Rob's not busy doing his own thing with Sixpence or various other things that he does as well. Right. So that's another life thing I do. But uh, outside of that, really, there's nothing really super steady. And even the Chris thing is not steady. It's really just every right. once in a blue moon. Because I know you were talking you were at this point you, talking about balancing between session work and live work. Mm-hmm. And having a, a Nashville gig like Trace Atkins, where there isn't this kind of like constant touring, but this kind of spotty or leaving on a Thursday night, coming back Sunday, you've got some time to develop a, uh, a client base mm-hmm. for sessions. So, is that been able? Is that been a thing that's you've been able to cultivate? Obviously, over time, but you know, in the last few years. Absolutely. And yeah. if so, how has that changed in 2017 compared to 2007? Oh, quite a bit. Um, well, cultivating it with live work, uh, having the balance is, is totally feasible. And especially now nowadays where everybody has the flexibility of recording in your house, yeah. uh, going to somebody else's house to record. Because now, even if, you know... You might have a, a simple setup at home to do what needs to get done, but you can go to your buddy's house and he's got a you know room that's almost as nice as like going to Sound Emporium or something like that. You know, right, right, right. Um, but being able to cultivate it with the live work is totally doable because if you go on the weekend, a lot of the bulk of the sessions that I do, um, I mean, obviously they're all over the week, but those typical 10 and twos, you know, 10 a.m. start, 2 p.m. start, three hour blocks are usually on Monday and Tuesdays, and right. it's not that. They plan it because they think, oh, he might be gone on the weekend or this guy's gone on the weekend. It just happens that way. It's just Mm -hmm, good mm -hmm. because we're like, that's usually a safe day. Yeah. Um, And I've been able to cultivate that more. Uh, I got the Trace Atkins gig because of session work, actually. Right, right. Tell me about that. Um, Well, the band leader, uh, John Coleman, who's a songwriter and producer in Mm -hmm. his own right, um, I never played with him live until Trace, but I've known him for many years, and we've just been in the studio together. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain producers would call us to do stuff, mm-hmm. and um, that's how we got to know each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only live gig that we did that crossed over was Steve Azar. Okay. Um, I did the Steve Azar, and so did he, but we never did it together. Oh, interesting. Like, he did it prior to me, and I did it in between, so whenever Steve, and this is the point where Steve was, Steve has moved to, back to Mississippi, and he still plays, but not as often as he was. I see. Um, and at that time, it was kind of weekend warrior stuff, too. So I'd come in and sub in, and he had a bass player who, who's been with him for a long time. So, um, you know, when it came uh, to the Trace thing, he had a couple bass players who were like, my predecessor in the gig was Mike Brignardello. Oh, like okay. Mike had played on the Trace records mm-hmm. and played live with him for a while. Uh, so when Mike peeled back out of it, it was kind of like, well, it started with me subbing in for Mike okay. um, in uh, at the end of 2014, I believe. And, and we should say that Mike, and I'm saying his last name is difficult for me, Brignardello. Correct. Mike 
Brignardello. Right. There you go. <laughs> or Briggs. You, you know, that's another thing. Is, uh, is somebody worth looking into? Uh, amazing player with, with just a, a, a great resume. Uh, so to be, you know, to be a, a sub starting out as a sub and then taking over or whatever. That, I mean, that's, that's an amazing, that's an amazing thing, mm. you know, for sure. But that was, um, you know, that's kind of was the catalyst. Yeah. Um, obviously the, also I should say that the, uh, Trace's drummer, Johnny Richardson and I had worked together before with Jimmy Wayne. Okay. So I had that established as well. Yeah. And, uh, Johnny himself will do outside stuff. He plays for John Oates when John Oates does solo oh, stuff cool. from Holland Oates. Um, all I have to say is that this was an ideal situation for me to step into as far as keeping the other work because most, uh, if not everybody in the Trace band has all been a session guy, done session work, or has had notoriety prior mm-hmm. to Trace. And Trace mm-hmm. likes this. He encourages it because he wants, you know, the the seasoned thing, you know, not the seasoned thing. That's it sometimes can be a bad word, but uh you know, he wants to experience things because he just expects it. You know, he's like, yeah. I've done this a long time. I know what a good band can be. And I know yeah. that I can just say, hey, this is what I need and you guys will get it done. Right. You know, right. so that's what he looks for. So he encourages almost that thing. And we've done random other things for him, like random recordings for him. I know that prior to me, Trace did a Christmas album. Yeah, um, which was really nice because it was it was uh, John Coleman had co-produced it with Michael Spriggs, who's a great session uh, guitar player, and uh, but they had a lot of the band guys play on it. Oh, cool! So Johnny played on some tracks, and then Kenny Arnoff played on the rest of them. Uh-oh, so that was wow. a nice little balance there. Um, so and his and subsequently his record is not the stereotypical country Christmas record. It's a very Celtic-based world music oh, kind interesting. of thing. Very cool, yeah. Oh, cool. And even Johnny, the drummer, says, man, I was almost dreading it, because I played a couple tracks that were cool, but then when I was presented with the record, and I had to learn it now to do the Christmas tour, he's like, am I going to have to do Jingle Bell Rock or something like that? And he goes, oh, no, there's some cool rhythmic percussion-y thing. Yeah. This, is, this is cool. Yeah, uh, From a drummer's perspective, right. really. Um, yeah. So that's how uh, that happened, and the opportunity was as such that I'm like, wow, I can really balance yeah. the session thing. I don't have to completely let it go because I know a lot of artists that are successful and lucrative, but they're having to be gone all the time. Yeah. You know, and sometimes they're, you know, speaking of their drummers specifically, uh, they're able to still cultivate some studio work, but especially with drums, you can't just do it in a hotel room. Right. You know, you need to, it's an investment. Well, you can, but uh, it's frowned upon. It is frowned upon. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to get my SPDS and do that. And that can be done and that's great. But ideally, you know, you want oh, your know. kit. And you can maybe situation. get sound check and get a good sound. There's that and, too. And then the manager kicks you out. Exactly. Or if it's a situation where do you have the facility, do you have a Pro Tools rig or something yeah. wired up to go? Oh, even at home. Right. Yeah. You know, it's that tough. kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, and I want to kind of go through your history, and uh, but I want to get to some meat and potatoes here. But you were born in Flint, Michigan, but you were raised in Florida. Correct. Um, and uh, it sounds like your parents, uh, you know, encourage you to you know, find what you wanted to do. So like you took piano lessons and you did things. So it, it was your, was your, were your parents supportive in where you wanted to go with music or what your interests were? They were. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Um, and it's, and it's 
uh, a very unique perspective because my my father's a doctor, yeah, uh, and uh, you know, and they're very much of the since they were um, my father's from the Dominican Republic and my mother's mm-hmm. from Puerto Rico and my stepmom's from North Carolina. Go figure it out. <laughs> uh, so. You know, in my my parents split up when just before I turned ten, okay. and my mother's was very artistic. Okay. And even though my mother was more of the, uh, you know, the homemaker at first, and and she's obviously since since they split up became went back in the workforce and everything, mm-hmm. but she always had an artistic side, mm-hmm. and she always was the first one to go like when I was I'm the eldest, I was their firstborn to say. Um, well, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to get him into extracurricular piano lessons, uh, painting, you know, pottery, everything yeah. that's like, and she would do it with me. So that's how we got to bond. Nice. And my dad uh, did do music in school. Yeah. So he understood it. And it wasn't like a foreign concept, like a lot of people who are in those doctors, lawyers kind of thing that you think of those worlds as being very different, Yeah. especially yeah. from your mindset. And and he wasn't that he, he totally got it. So when it came time to kind of when it was serious, aka high school, when I'm looking at colleges and right. saying, I really want to do this for a living. My, my dad was, was like, well, sure, of course. Right. But you know, at first it was like, well, don't you want to study something else to fall back on? Because I know that how trepidatious that career can be. Yeah. I said, no, because I'll fall back on it. Yeah. Um, so his whole thing's like, okay, cool. Totally get it. Just do me a favor. Just please go to school for it. You know, go to college mm-hmm. for music. I said, Absolutely. So I presented him with like, there's, you know, Juilliard and MI and Berkeley. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I, I was really had my eye on Berkeley, like, as, as, and that's where I wound up going. And, um, and my dad, uh, to fast forward into the Berkeley thing, my, as my dad started to learn about what was involved with the music industry as a whole, yes, he really got fascinated by that. And he's like, oh, so there's this and that. And so he wound up learning a lot about the infrastructure of the business along with me. Yeah. You know, kind of, which is cool. So he's like, oh, so a producer, this is what's really involved with a producer yeah. and a front house engineer and this and this mm-hmm. and this. So now yeah. it's like, you know, he, my family as a whole, like, kind of gets it now because they saw it through me and learned it. But they were, all that was standing, they're always very supportive. Yeah. Because you know, they're like, well, that's, we can't deny who you are. That's just who you are. Right, right. You know, it'd be a travesty to go, like, no, you shouldn't pursue this music thing. You should do this because it's a safer base. Like, no, it's, it's just not who you are. Right, right. And you stayed in Boston mm-hmm. for a little while. Right. Uh, but you had friends that, were moving to Nashville and encourage you to come down. Uh, so was that oh, 97 mm-hmm. or so? Uh, and then once you were here, was when did Hot Action Cop, where did that fall into that? Because <laughs> when we first met, right. I think you had just left the band. Correct. Um, and I hadn't heard of the band at the time, but you had talked about this band. And then this is my personal story about it. So I'm like, wow, this sounds really interesting. Then, And you talked about uh, one of the songs was in, the, in, in a movie and it was Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's interesting, man. That, that's 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 definitely moving up the food chain as far as what bands are, are doing now and what. Mm. And then uh, I'm, I'm sitting at home and I'm playing a video game and there's different music going on. And, uh, and I see, I was like, wow, what's this kind of like funk, soul, heavy rock band? And I, of course, you know, my ears perk up and hot action cop. Holy crap. That's, that's, <laughs> that's Louis band, man. What the heck's mm-hmm. going on? Um, so it, 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 it definitely, uh, 
it seemed like early on you were involved in a, uh, in, a, in, a in an act that was signed to a major label and and doing serious things, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so what was that? What was that experience like? It was a good experience. I mean, it was it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, as they say. <laughs> Anybody can say, but that's that could be any any situation like that. Uh, that came about uh, in mid two thousand one. I had just uh, I remember the day specifically when it kind of came to my attention. I was playing Billy Blocks yeah. uh, that night when he was doing it Exit In. Right. And the right. drummer buddy of mine was already kind of talking to. Um, uh, my name was given to the management of what was to become High Action Cop uh, by one of, uh, by an engineer producer that I had worked with recently in, on mm-hmm. an independent record. And, uh, you know, they were looking for somebody to maybe record some tracks and then, mm-hmm. you know, who knows, maybe play some shows. And uh, I had just auditioned for Lila McCann that day. Or the day before, I think. And then that day, I got the call going like, you didn't get it. Mm. Um, so I was kind of bumming because at that point, I, I mean, it's still young into my tenure into Nashville. I've, I've maybe auditioned for two major label artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get it. This is before I realized that auditions can be sometimes don't judge your right. thing you, by you, auditions. It's, it's hard to take it personally, but you, you've, you've really got to be careful not to take it personally. Sure. there's so many reasons. Well, there's so many factors that many times have nothing to do with the way you did the job. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, so I didn't get I didn't get the gig, and I'd gone that night to play Billy Blocks, and my drummer friend said, "Hey, you look kind of down. What's up?" And he's like, "Ah, I got the call. I didn't get it." He's like, "Man, don't worry about it. I I, I got something that I just gave your name that that your name came up. I think it's going to be a good thing." And that was it. And he was right. He couldn't have been more right. Um, mm-hmm. So fast forward, we um, you know got together, worked on some tunes, and then before I know it, there was like four or five different label people flying in. From oh, wow. LA and New York to come see, you know, at SIR Room 5 to see us run through some tunes. The first one of that being Matt Pinfield, who used to be on MTV, was an MTV personality. He used oh, to do wow. 120 minutes okay. back in the day, back in the early 90s. And now he was working for, I believe, Columbia as an A&R guy. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm like, I know who you are. You know, it's one <laughs> of those. But uh, anyways, uh, to truncate a little bit more, we got signed to uh, Atlantic, the Lava Division of Atlantic, which had a simple plan... Uh, 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 Matchbox 20, Sugar Ray, Kid Rock with mm-hmm. Double Without a Cause was on that label. Um, so it was a good little label to be attached to. But because of the label and the connections there, they kind of put us in front of, you know, New Line Cinema, uh, Warner Brothers Television, uh, mm. EA Games. And that's where all the placements started to come into, come into play. Was this seems was this a new trend to kind of get bands into movies and and television and and things like that? Well, I don't I don't know if it was so much of a new thing, but it was starting to hit its stride, and especially with the video games, that definitely was a, a new thing because right. the, the games had come into their own now, where you had them on CD-ROM, where you had the resolution to do full bands. You know, beforehand you couldn't do that on an Atari twenty six hundred or anything right, like that. Right. But now they start it became a, a thing. As evident yeah. by you're playing the game and you probably saw four four or five different bands on there. I did. You yeah. know, and it comes up. That was probably need for, need for speed hot pursuit too. And it would yeah. tell you like a radio station like in your car you could switch it. You know right, right. You know, like all those things. And um, so it was a it was a neat experience and that came came about. But the overall thing was, you know, my goal of being a session entity mm-hmm. kind of almost led into this 
And I did. And then even as the band progressed, uh, we wound up, one of the songs wound up going uh, top 10 in Germany, Japan, and Australia. Yeah. So all of a sudden we're going to Germany and doing Top of the Pops. And it's kind of like, you know, hey kid, remember those rock and roll dreams you had? Would you like to at least give it a shot? Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we, I mean, it was the whole thing. I got that picture still where we showed up at the studios for uh, Top of the Pops in Germany. Yeah. And there's fans at the gate waiting, yeah. you know, to get our autographs and pictures, waiting to see if they can catch a glimpse of us. And we're like, you know, I literally handed my camera to our tour manager, like, please take a picture of this because nobody will believe me that I'm actually, <laughs> people are, because this is the time where they're right. on the internet, like, we didn't have, like, you know, we weren't passing around eight by tens or anything. These fans had gone online, found pictures of us, and did color prints, and then showed up and said, "Hey, can you sign this?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it was a great experience. But then we got done with the record uh, and the tour that year, two thousand three, and it was a busy, busy, busy year. We mm-hmm. did a, we did a movie, we did this. Um, so then it comes time to record the second record. This is two thousand four. Our drummer decides, you know what, I'm. I want to get off the road. Mm-hmm. I, he now has two young kids himself. Mm-hmm. He's like, I've got to tail it back, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, as oddly enough, we just played Music City Roots together. We hadn't played together in about a decade, and we just did something wow, recently. That's cool. Um, he's still a great player, and yeah. uh, so that's where I got introduced to Miles McPherson. Yeah. So okay, in the studio. In the studio. For the second this record. was 2004. So I didn't know Miles from Adam. I I knew who his dad Jerry was. Right. It was like, oh, my son plays, and the engineer at the time said, "Hey, man, you need a guy to play. My buddy Miles does good work, and I think he's the right energy for this project." So cool. And about that time, I decided to peel back a bit. I was like, you know, I don't want to be a band member anymore. Mm. I just kind of want to do the record. I'm probably not going to do a lot of touring. So the manager said, all right, well, be aware. I'll do that. And I'll pay you as a session guy. But that's it. No more of your other royalties, you know, like Mm. that you were getting. I'm like, that's okay. I'm fine with that. Mm. So I became a session guy on the record along with Miles. So Miles and I were the session guys on the record. I see. And then they wound up touring and they got another bass player. So then I peeled out of the band. And that's about the time you and I met. Okay. Is the band, I mean, is, is the band still doing it? Or 2012, I think, was the last. Did I read that? Yeah, I think their most latest release was 2012, 2013, right in there. Um, okay. I think the record's called Listen Up, because I guessed it on two tracks. Yeah. Uh, they had me come in, and uh, they're still going. Yeah. Uh, it's the lead singer, the main songwriter, yeah. uh, who's... Rob Werthner, who's, like, a brilliant mad scientist. Like, mm-hmm. I was impressed. Like, we're doing this you know, soul rap metal thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the guy is a phenomenal jazz guitar player. <laughs> Go figure. It's yeah, like, right, right. And he's not even the lead guitar player. He's the right. singer who's playing along. I'm like, all that rhythmic stuff you hear is him. Yeah. You know, it, it's crazy. Well, I want to cover uh, something yeah. a little bit broader that is related to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and that's um, the music business and the decisions. Uh, it, it involves very much what being an adult is like, even though we're all in an arrested development stage. Yes. And never grow up, you know, Hey mom, when I grow up, I want to be a drummer, honey, you can't do both. That right. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But it involves making decisions all the time and you never know if it's the right decision. And it, it, you won't know until you make that decision and you choose that path. And like you said, you just said, hey, I'm ready to be done with this. I'm kind of, I want to get off the road. I want to do sessions. And the manage, manager's like, fine, but you don't, you don't get this, you don't get that. And you're like, I'm good with that. Well, at that point, you had to make that decision. And I think it, it's always like, well, I've already decided to take this risky route of trying to make a career out of music. How can I make it even more riskier by doing 
maybe taking myself out of a comfortable situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you manage making those decisions? That's tough. Um, well, the first thing is like trying to take the emotional equation out of it Mm. is for me personally, one of the, the coping mechanisms I do, obviously, because we're, we're in the field of the arts. A lot of our emotion goes into our work mm-hmm. more so than other professions. So obviously it's very hard to separate the two and, but yeah. you have to make the effort of like, okay, when you're making a business decision to kind of take that out of the equation mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I mean, you do, you don't want to forget the emotional side of it. You want it to, because that's, it's part of who you are, but mm-hmm. you do have to think of it logically. Mm-hmm. So when it came time to make a decision, like in the case of that one, and there's been other times I've had to do something similar, uh, you have to do it because you have to think of well, what is it that I want to do? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to do? Right. You know, I had that, 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 uh, those very words, I, to this day, those were spoken to me by Victor Wooten in 1998. Um, who who had one of those, like, he saw me, I was down, and, and started talking to me. He was like, well, and when I told him what was going on, he's like, you know, even prior to Hot Action Cop and everything else, when I just was like, oh, I want more work, and I want to do this, and I just haven't got it yet. And, you know, obviously, I was new to town. Obviously, I wasn't going to get yeah, it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's like, you know, well, what do you want to do? Yeah. You know, really. And it's simple. It's like, well, I want to play this. And he's like, stop right there. Don't mm. think anymore. Don't, don't, you know, I, you know, I, I understand you have to be smart about your money and you have to think about that, but really what's your first motivation? Because the money's not always going to be there or be there the way you want it to be. Mm-hmm. So taking the emotion out of it is part of it. Um, or trying to, I should say, it's never going to be a hundred percent where you can totally make yourself a cold calculating machine. I can't, um, and then trying to approach it very objectively and say, okay, well, is this going to help me going forward? Or is this going to help uh, me to achieve what I want? Because what I want is not going to be what you want or the next guy wants. Right. right. Out of life and out of a career. Yeah. Um, and, and really look at it as how it's going to affect the rest of your life. Yeah. Because it's the whole thing. Uh, I, I always wave the flag of balance to mm-hmm. people when they ask me questions like that. Because it's the, well, you want the study career. And that's, you still have to say that's a big part, but it's still just a part of your mm-hmm. life. Yeah. You have the family thing, the personal thing. Right. And even if you're like, eh, I don't need to get married. I don't need a partner. I don't need kids, whatever. You still want friends. You still want, you know, right. that you need that human contact element. So how is that going to affect that and vice versa? And when you say friends, you mean friends. Mm-hmm. You mean there's, yeah, there's, let's make a distinction. So much of us see each other and see our friends. And I consider you my friend, Louis. Yeah, thank you. That a lot of times we don't see each other unless we're in a work environment or we're seeing each other perform or something like that. And taking the time, is it's it's important for that. Now, uh, you and I are in a similar boat. We have... uh, a family and kids and stuff like that. So that mm-hmm. takes a lot of our attention and we have friends that don't have that. And so they have a little bit more time to do other things. But, um, you know, I met, met a, a guy with for coffee, uh, last week and a young kid that's coming up and, uh, doing an internship here in Nashville. And I said, look, focusing on your career and music is really important. I said, but you know, it comes and goes. It's important to focus on relationships. And now, if you want a family, great. If you don't, that's great too. You know, um, 
But making sure that those things are in place is important because uh, music is unforgiving. Mm -hmm. And the industry will, uh, when they're done with you, they're done with you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, every... There's a lot of people that think, especially on the artist side, that they might be immune to that. Yeah, for but sure. They, but they're everybody, top to bottom, yeah, from the biggest president of the biggest label to the lowest paid side guy or crew member, everybody is like, uh, dis- I don't want to say disposable, but dis- um, expendable. And some, it's just somebody's eyes, or the or the industry itself could change. And it's you know, it's not a person; it's the entity of the industry changing so drastically that all of a sudden you're out of right. a job, right? For some time, uh, with Bo Bice, mm-hmm. was that American Idol? Yeah, sure he was. was doing? Yeah, he was the runner-up to Carrie Underwood that year. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Um, I know that kept you busy for a few years. Two, uh, a couple years, yeah. About okay. two. Okay. It wasn't a lot, but uh, yeah, that was that came about. Let's see, that was a little past that because I mean the my my tenure with Action Cop kind of wrapped up in two thousand four. Uh, I started with Bo in oh six oh seven. Okay, uh, and I worked with some other artists in between there as well. Right, but, um, right. but with Bo in particular, he was uh, he had done American Idol. He'd released his first record, which had a number one song on it called "The Real Thing," and. Basically, I joined up with him in that interim right before his second record that he had just gotten out of his deal um, and was going to do his version because Bo's a Southern rocker through and through, mm-hmm. you know, unabashedly so, and, and he's great at it. Um, obviously, some of that reflected in the American Idol competition, you could tell, and people like he was the first like rock guy, and it was like, right, you know, I like right. that guy. Even my parents said, he reminds me of you when you had long hair. And then fast <laughs> forward, I'm like, I play with him now. And they're like, this is awesome. Uh, but, uh, you know, I started working with him and uh, he wanted to put together like a crack band was his his goal. He kept from his old band because a lot of the guys in his previous band were old friends of his. And that's great. And they all did a great job. But he had this different vision. So he wanted to put together like this, like, you know, just on the nose band, but, you know, not just the, okay, you're a session player out of Nashville. I want you to have a little extra fire or something that makes you that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was recommended to him and, uh, my audition for him was he, he called me himself, which is kind of like, Hey, Luis, my name is Bo Bison. He was great because he treated it as, even at that time he had more notoriety and he treated it as like, I'm just another dude looking for a bass player. Yeah, you know, yeah. here's my number. Call me. Let me know. And I went to his house, and the audition was me. He kept his keyboard player, who's from L.A., yeah. was an old buddy of his, and became like his musical director. And we just jammed a couple songs, and it was literally like two songs in, and we're just messing around in his studio. And he's like, "I heard enough. I, you know, I I dig it. You dig it? Cool. You yeah. got the gig." Yeah. And then the first couple gigs was Miles McPherson on drums, yeah, and Phil Schaus on guitar. So from the Rock and Roll Residency now and from Gene Simmons' solo band. And I had known Phil. He's done a bunch of country stuff, too. So we had an absolute blast. First couple shows. And there's still YouTube footage of the the hilarity that ensued from the first show because we got dumped on and... You know, Phil slipped and tripped in the middle of his solo in Freebird and just like took a nosedive and we're all <laughs> laughing at it. We're just like a bunch of kids. It was fun though. But working with Bo was good because it showed me uh, a different side of an artist who had notoriety not only from being a music artist, but from TV and uh, mm-hmm. from television, mm-hmm. which is a whole different fan base and a yeah. whole different crazy too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's worked for Blake Shelton. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, Blake, I mean, Blake obviously already had notoriety as a music artist prior. Right. Uh, so then all of a sudden now he gets the TV fans, and he could probably tell you, any of those guys could tell you, oh, yeah, the fans, are. it's a different kind of fan base. Yeah. If they yeah. see you on TV, it's just different. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's how I got involved with Bo is really that. And I I mean, I still text him from once in, yeah, every once in a while. He's now singing for um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's kind cool. of been his gig lately. I mean, he still does other things here and there yeah. and whatever, but uh, but that's kind of been like his thing, and he's yeah. been enjoying that quite a bit. That's good to know. I mean, yeah. he's still singing and doing other stuff. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's a lot that's of fun. Awesome. But that, uh, but yeah, the bow thing came about even just like when I was in full hired gun mode. There's so many different uh, people uh, that we can just kind of run down a list. Obviously, uh, currently, Trace Atkins, Jamie O'Neill, mm-hmm. Jimmy Wayne, mm-hmm. uh, Lindsay L., mm-hmm. uh, Jake Cohen, Terry Clark, Pam Tillis, James Otto, Tanya Tucker, and Doc Walker, who uh, I've been working with uh, Michelle Wright uh, oh, off and yeah. on for the la- last 10 years. And uh, there was one year, it seemed like every theater we played at, Doc Walker was there. Mm-hmm. And we did a show. We did a festival and uh, they were headlining and it was just it was awesome to see them mm. play and you weren't with them at the time but I was like man I've seen the posters of these guys I've seen you know I've never heard of them in the states but they're in Canada they're all they seem huge and of course when they, when we saw them perform they sounded incredible mm. and then uh, and then I'm like wait a minute you you played with them too that yep. was awesome, man. Yeah, and that was a great. That was another one of those great experiences. That uh, and uh, this was uh, April of two thousand seven, mm-hmm. and uh, the Doc Walker guys. I mean, they're they do great in Canada. They've had several hits up there, mm-hmm. and their music's great. They're like a, a modern day Eagles to me. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way I equate it because they got these rich harmonies that they just nail to the wall. Yeah, and they're it's cool cool tunes. Um, my buddy Chris Cotro's guitar player, who's uh, Terry Clark's band leader okay. uh, now, and then him and I had worked with uh, Lila McCann prior. We'd mm-hmm. done a couple session things together. Uh, he was friends with Chris Sutherland, the drummer, okay. who, who's no longer with Doc Walker, who, who's a, a, a phenomenal drummer up in Canada. Um, and they said that they'd just done a run with um, uh, uh, Dirk Bentley up there they're doing like a co-headlining thing right. up in canada well their bass player decided i'm done you know he's like it, their bass player is also a producer in winnipeg and is, is done right for himself there and had built out this nice studio and kind of wanted to focus on that so he pulled out well they had a three and a half week run of the like from toronto over to nova scotia mm-hmm. coming up or ontario over and uh, they needed somebody kind of fairly quickly or whatever yeah, so right. uh for some reason uh Chris was talking to... Who was bilingual because, you know, it's... Oh, wait, Spanish. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Suds, Chris Sutherland, uh, talked to Chris Katros, and they were chit-chatting, and and Chris Katros had recommended my name. So their whole thing was like, all right, well, we'll come into town. we got to shoot a video. We're going to do it in Nashville. Um, And then why don't you come? We'll run through the the things. And then we've got two shows already on the books. Uh, We're opening up for Lone Star in uh, Myrtle Beach. Mm. And then we'll fly up and do the three-week tour. 
All right, cool. So we did the tour three and a half weeks and it was a blast. Yeah. The musicianship, it was, uh, at the time, there's a lot of guys that are not there anymore, like Chris Sutherland himself. Mm-hmm. And Murray Pulver, the lead guitar player, used to be in Crash Test Dummies. Was their oh, lead interesting, guy. yeah. A great singer, great producer. I did a record with him here in town producing a while back. And um, had a great time. You know, yeah. just went, did did the run, and that was it. And obviously, it was one of those things that, um, obviously... If there's more opportunity for me to work, that'd have been great. But yeah. unfortunately, it's logistically a little tougher because mm. they're based in Canada, and right, right. getting all the logistics and paying not only paying me to do the gig, but paying to get you know me across the border and the the mm-hmm. visas and all that stuff. So obviously, I had to get somebody in Canada. I totally understood. Yeah, uh, Chris left right after that tour. He wound up going out with Saga for their 30th anniversary tour because their drummer had. So he's on their their 30th anniversary DVD. Uh, Chris has done a lot of work. Like he's done with, uh, and he'll correct me, I'm sure, uh, Metalworks, their, you know, their online uh, drum courses and stuff like okay, that. Okay, okay. Uh, Chris works worked with, um, was even working with Doc Walk during that time, but st- still for many years with, uh, um, what's his name, uh, from Max Webster, um, singer, uh, Kim Mitchell. Oh. Uh, he played wow. with Kim Mitchell for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then he's now doing a lot of theater work, like in Toronto. So he played he played on like uh, um, Mamma Mia and Kinky oh, Boots, and he's currently yeah. doing the Bad Out of Hell musical up there right now. <laughs> so he's his skill set's way up. there. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those like uh, uh, Rich Redman is like I love Suds. He's the most amazing. Blah, blah, blah. You know, he's the guy <laughs> who, will, who will definitely like put him on a pedestal. Be rich, but yeah, yeah. Chris is a great dude and a f- phenomenal drummer, and we became friends with that. Yeah. So. Uh, Suds did a solo record, and I got to play on one track, so I got to play on track one on that one. Uh, But that was Doc Walker. It was a fun time, and they're great. They're still doing it, but it's the two main guys as the band, really. So one of the things that there's uh, I notice as a consistency is is as you work with different people, there's a takeaway Mm -hmm. from these gigs that um, tends to turn into uh, either an album project or or another gig or an audition opportunity or other things like that. Is there anything special that you feel like you bring to the table when you're doing a gig that maybe will, or are you conscious about like uh, cultivating these relationships, knowing that they could lead or you're just like, no, I'm just doing my thing. Well, I, maybe a little, maybe subconsciously I'm thinking about it, but I'm never, I always approaches it as you never know. You know, just do do your best because you never know. Because mm-hmm. it does lead. Because everything I've done, probably you as well, most everybody in this town can tell you that it was like A leads to B leads to yeah. C. Yeah. And then somewhere along, you know, when you get to the end of the alphabet, you're like, oh, I, I, I got a paying gig. I got something, you know, tangible. Right. Um, I don't know other than what I bring to the table other than, you know, just being prepared, just those things that you think... There's the obvious. The obvious The, the, the playing, being prepared, you know, all those things, which we've discussed many times. And, right. And e- even uh, there's a shout-out to Bev Miskis and the article she wrote about you in Nashville 360. Mm-hmm. That's a great, uh, great article. It helped me catch up with a lot of things <laughs> that you were doing. Thanks, Bev, for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I encourage you to anyone to go online and, and to, to read more about Louie and what, what he's doing. But the, the, the thing is, um, kind of like the Trace Atkins gig, mm-hmm. you came in as a sub mm-hmm. 
And you had a you had a week and a half or so. It wasn't like a last minute thing, but you had a little bit of time, but not a whole lot of time. And you showed up without charts. You came in prepared. Mm. The reason I say that is, and we can go into that, but but the point is, these are obvious things that we've discussed many times. Show up prepared, um, do the job, and then play your ass off. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking beyond that. Beyond the – well, the reason I emphasize like what we call the obvious is because it surprises me how many people in this day and age don't do the obvious. Which I is? Just, which is be prepared. Hmm. Be a nice person. I know it, it's to, – to us, we consider that musicianship 101. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just learn the material. Do your homework. You yeah. know? That's – I mean, obviously, there's always mitigating circumstances where you're, you're like – Wow, I've got no time. Like when I did the tantric tour, you know, I had literally twelve hours before I hopped on a tour. Right, right. So it was one of those. But you know, still, I try to prep as much as I could, knowing going in. So um, outside of that, there's the personal aspect of being a, a good human being and being personable, and um, you know, getting to know these people mm-hmm. on a personal level. It's like uh, um, I could say. When you're in a situation, because, you know, with touring things, the gig is encompasses, if you're lucky, 90 minutes of the day, you know, right, and maybe right. another half an hour for sound check. So maybe you're talking two hours of your day is that yeah. the rest of the hours of the day, that's an old saying, but it's true. You're having to probably be in a bus with these guys in a tube, right, right. you know, close quarters or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to be the sulking dude or the right. or the. Um, there's a lot. I saw a lot of people recently, and I probably might have been guilty of this in my younger years. But when a new guy comes into a situation like that, I've seen a lot of guys start boasting about their accomplishments mm-hmm. and not not trying to be like you know pat themselves on the back kind of thing, but they're trying to prove to these people that they're worthy to be there too. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, like, oh, I know so and so. I've played with so and so. I've done that before, whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and and sometimes that comes out naturally, like it's just a part of the conversation. Right. But I can almost tell now a lot of people where they force the thing of like they want to tell you, like, oh, I've done a big gig before. Mm-hmm. I've done this or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. because they're on the gig already. Yeah. And and I, like I said, I might have been guilty of that in my younger years. But I started to realize, like, well, if you're on the gig, you're there for a reason. Just let it be. And let it happen organically, right. like in conversation. So I did this thing. Hey, you know, I know him. Oh, how do you know him? Well, we did this session. Maybe it comes up. Exactly. And, and you've got time to, to work that out. Right. For or sure. you've got hours on it on the bus. Or even like you're parked on the bus and there's yeah. like, you know, there's a dressing room, but it's kind of small. And it's nice and cozy on the bus. There's TV. I'm going to stay here. You know, right. plus there's goodies I can eat out of the kitchen. Um, the other thing that I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned uh, to you, but one thing that I've noticed in, especially on the the drummer jams and the uh, the Tom Hurston, the, the times that I've seen you perform in, in recent years mm-hmm. um, is that you just, there's just a, a happy energy. There's just like a positivity that you, I see you bringing on stage where everyone's kind of concentrating. I have one song to perform and do all this stuff. And you're up there and you're like having a good time and looking over at the drummer, looking over at whatever. And you're, you're getting, you, you kind of go through these phases of faces. Like you're kind of serious, you're grooving, you got the stank face and you look up and you smile and you're like this. And it's like, there's a lot going on up there, man. So I think that you're bringing in this energy on stage as well. Well, thank you. I you hope know, so. Yeah. And uh, I think that because that's that's the 90 minutes or the two hours that you have to do what you love, mm-hmm. you know, if you're on the road. 
So I imagine that goes a long way too, that when somebody's like, man, what a great player, great pocket, but also the positive energy. I want to work with him again. Mm-hmm. And that transcends transcends into the studio as well. I definitely think so. Yeah. And especially in the studio where there's been many times that you're you're there and you're hired. And you know, a lot of times with Nashville sessions, it's you don't know what you're cutting until you get there. You yeah, know, until right, right before right. they hit record, you don't know what song it is. It's just here's a chart, let's listen to a demo real quick and, and off you go. Right. It, there's no sometimes there's no pre production. They don't do a lot of pre pro here, and that's right. fine. But sometimes the songs are not the most idealistic song, shall we say, you know, it's not the, Hey, this is not going to be a hit or this is, or, or not more importantly, it's, this is not something I like necessarily. Yeah. And I've seen people in their, they won't say it, but I've seen it in their body language, Mm. like in the studio, especially if you're on the floor, you see a guy kind of crump a little more into his seat (laughs) and go like, uh, uh, and you're like, are, are you okay? Did, is lunch getting to you or what's going on? It's like, it's like, Oh no, this is a terrible song, and I'm like, you know, or whatever. And, and, and my reaction to that, and I, I think somebody probably taught me this. I, I wish I could give credit, but my philosophy with that is you make your own fun. You know, mm-hmm. it could be, this could be the most tongue in cheek, what you would consider it. And keep in mind, this is art. So, you know, somebody's trash is somebody else's treasure. You know, if you think it's crap, somebody else is going to definitely think it's a hit, you know? So we're not, you know, we can't think that way that we are the be all end of like, this is a hit and this is not right. Who's to say, or there's a player out there that says, Hey, look, you don't want to do it. I'll do it. Exactly. There's that too. So, you know, when it comes to that energy, you definitely want to reflect the positivity. And that usually happens even in like the adverse conditions, whether it be live or the studio. And the studio could be something as simple as the the song is just, eh, you know, you don't like it. Or technically something is going on in the control room that you, you, you know, you have no control over. Live, it could be the same thing. Something technically is going on or you're doing an outdoor gig and the weather is absolutely atrocious. And you're like, who thought to book this gig? Right. You and know? if you're if you're working with an artist, I've been in those situations mm-hmm. and the artist is like, oh, no, the weather is just it's awful. And, and we're not getting the crowds that we want. And, and, exactly. and we traveled all this way. We spent all this money. To, and, and who knows if the investor is going to be happy. There's so much on their mind. It's their name on the, oh, on yeah. the ticket and everything like that. They don't need it. Like, like a band member to be like, man, this is bullshit, man. This is, no. oh, hey, doesn't this suck? You know, like they no. don't need that. They need that. Hey, you know what? There's uh, half the people out there that you expected, but we're going to, we're going to give them a show there that, you know, the people that aren't here are going to be so mm-hmm. jealous that they missed it. Oh yeah. You yeah. Know? Some of my best shows have been under those kind of conditions. I, I yeah. can still tell you this day, one of my best hot action cop shows was at a, was at Jack Rabbits in Jacksonville, Florida. Hmm. And I mean, many years later, I can still tell you, I can still remember how it felt because there was nobody there. And we, I think this was just after Germany when we were playing, when we were right. legit rock stars, you know, we're like, <laughs> Hey, when we come home, we're like, and there's literally one, two, three people here that don't work here. And six crickets. And six crickets. <laughs> but man, it was just, I don't know what got into me. I had the best show. Yeah. I mean, everything, the energy was good. Uh, I moved more, you know, our manager was always like, man, you got to rock out more or whatever. I was bouncing around like a little kid mm-hmm. and i literally i mean to this day years later i'm like man that was probably one of my best shows with that band where nobody was there to see it yeah you know 
But uh, just, it happens. Just elevating that. And, and there's times that, uh, you know, it's like, well, because we feed off the, the, the audience so mm-hmm. much. You get to a point where it's like, man, I really need people out there to, to help, you know, elevate this show, this performance. But, but also you can put that energy or put that motivation into the people that you're working with. And it's like, even though, if it, even if it's a close friend you've worked with for, for years, it's like, man, I want them to have a good time. I want them to remember this and be like, Absolutely. yeah, I'm so glad that we're working together. And I'm so glad that we're doing this. Yeah. Just make sure that that happens. Well, think of the relationship between, especially with bass and drums. Like that's always been the thing with me is get the drummer happy, mm. you know? And subsequently that's what's happened with me because there's been times where I've, uh, you know, a couple times where I've gone into a gig where I just, something was going on in my life or whatever that I just wasn't hundred mm. percent focused. And I was in on the negative side of things. Right. The drummers always pulled me out of it. Mm. You know, like the, the case I told you, the Billy Block show, I was bummed because I didn't get an audition. And then like, he's already trying to cheer me up. Uh, there was another situation where, um, uh, I was playing, uh, at the Tootsie's back room with low cash cowboys in 2005 mm. when they were just low cash cowboys supposed to just low cash. And it was just, something was up and it wasn't the most ideal day. And the drummer immediately like told me like the most crass joke. <laughs> Like he's already behind the drums and he says the punchline and counts me into the song. Doesn't he give me a chance to react? Just <laughs> we're gone. Boom. You know, yeah. and you know, punchline two, three, four, right. and we're in. And, but man, to this day, I'm like, put a smile on my face. Right. And he did that because he wanted me happy. He's like, dude, when you're happy, we play better. And the audience picks up on that. And the audience in from a performance perspective. Well, not even that. I can even put that into a studio situation. Yeah. You can tell that the band had fun. There's just something about it. There was a, where I was listening to an Indigo Girls record about 10 years ago that Peter Collins produced. And, uh, which one? I can't remember. All I can remember, it was kind of like this cool, like almost comic book artwork stuff. And you open it up, it's like a booklet almost. I'll look it up and I'm sure somebody listening goes, Oh, it's that one. But we were, I was driving to a gig and the buddy of mine had it. He's like, let's check it out. I was like, yeah, why not? And you could tell the band was having fun by just what they were playing. I mean, obviously they're phenomenal players, all session guys, but every ending was different. And you could almost like, I swear in a couple of them, it trailed off. You heard them laughing. Yeah. Like at the end of, (laughs) you know, so you could tell and it translates the energy and what they were playing. You could totally hear it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And that makes it so much fun. Absolutely. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Nine times out of ten, um, especially with drums, the way I approach in a band situation or you have a group of musicians, whatever it is, the drummer is the clock, is the dictating factor. Mm -hmm. So I always default to, unless it's discussed prior and somebody decides, oh, we're going to do that, I always default to like, okay, wherever the drummer puts it is where I'm going to put it. Mm -hmm. Because every drummer 
feels it differently. Yeah. And it's not better or worse. It's just different. It's a mm-hmm. different approach. It's a different thing. It's that whole thing of if you got four points on a line to, to beats one through four in a four, four time. And if you're on top of it, you know, or right on it, I should say, or they're slightly behind it or slightly ahead of it. That's fine. So long as there's consistency across mm-hmm. the board, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, because everybody puts it differently. It's just the human element, which is always great. But I always let the drummer by default set the tone. Mm-hmm. They set the tone, and I almost sometimes I'll even put myself into like an automatic mode and let them pull me or push me. Right. You know, so that way the the feel is together. Right. You know, and that's even in the studio uh, with a with a click track running. I'll always put the click track very low in my mix. I was going to ask. That was another question I had. Is is your monitor mix in the studio and kind of? And I ask that a lot to, to drummers. Like, where do you put the click in relation to everything else or sure. other instrumentation? So, mm-hmm. very low. Uh, for me, the click is is there. Uh-huh. It's very low. It's really there for me to hear the the intro like the count off like okay we're sure. ready to go or it's there just in case that i have to play through a point where there's no other timekeeping elements yeah like I drummer's mean. not even playing like even time on a hat or anything yeah. i just have there for a reference point so the moment that the drums come in in any type of degree it's pretty much gone you know it right. just kind of drowns it out naturally the reason i do that is because again every drummer feels it differently right um and having played with so many great drummers all the time, it's always switching. Yeah. I, I've, I've learned that lesson well, and I've learned how to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, navigate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So I let them pull me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we can always talk about, um, you know, pre-thought if you want, going like, hey, you know, why don't you know me as the bass player? I'm going to pull you on this one. Let me, you know, mm-hmm. let me kind of dictate that because there's a couple songs where like I might intro it and it's like let me let me set it and the drum be like, yeah, it's fine. So long as you're in the ballpark, we're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually I let the drummer do it. Yeah. I know you work with so many great drummers, but are there situations where, and, and not including me, uh, there are so many, is there, you. is there, is there, uh, have there been situations where maybe just the time hasn't been great or the, uh, the, the time feel hasn't been great or the drummer maybe doesn't have the experience uh, on the situation you're in, and is there a way that you kind of help push that forward? Is there something that you do? Is there a trick that you have to kind of like fatten up the the groove? Sometimes, yeah. Um, there's been situations like that uh, mm-hmm. uh, many times. Um, what I do in those situations sometimes is again I try to follow him, but that's tough sometimes because right. of the timing. Cause again, like I said, it's like this dude might play on top of the beat or behind the beat, but what makes him them is that it's consistent. Right. You know, if you have a guy that's not consistent, yeah. like, you know, in other words, like, and not on purpose, because obviously there's been situations in a studio where they're like, Hey, we're going to lay back on the verses and push the choruses. Yeah. You can kind of feel that. And the drummer will naturally lead you and it's still going to feel good. Yeah. But I'm talking about guys to where they're inconsistent from beat to beat and it just yeah. doesn't feel good. Right. Um, it's, it's tricky because for me, it's kind of like hitting a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And that's the way I've equated because somebody else asked me kind of a similar question. I'm like, that's tough. Uh, my trick is to default to kind of sit back a little bit mm-hmm. or to sometimes I'll try to get a visual on the drummer. If I can make eye contact with the drummer, mm-hmm. if I'm in a situation where, you know, I'm like and through my body language, you can almost see like, oh, 
we're going to go here. And I've seen drummers do this too, where the body language dictate like, hey, we're going to lay back on it. Or we're going to do this. Yeah. Uh, certain little, like almost like poker tells. If I can kind of look at them, I almost feel that they have more of a tendency to listen a little harder. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, they're not going to listen. There's right. so many times musicians, not just drummers, but musicians as a whole, get stuck in their little bubble and they right. won't listen. They're they, checked they, out. Yeah, they're like blinders. So no matter what you do, it's impossible. So then it becomes like, all right, well, moving target with the drums or if there's a click firing, I'll kind of be close to the click and he'll eventually kind of come back or the hopes are. Um, so there's not a right or I don't have a, a good answer to that, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Or I haven't figured it out yet what the cure-all is. I don't think there is one. Yeah. One of my favorite things about certain bass players, those that know, that understand length of note and when to play a short or a long or whatever, and you're one of them. You're one of them that knows how long to hold this, when to be staccato, creating the length of uh, the bass note that's appropriate for the song and the groove. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that a subconscious thing, or how do you figure out how to do that? Depending on the feel you want to go for, because mm-hmm. those things, uh, length of note dictates a feel as well, coming from my end, from yeah. the bass players. Oh, yeah. um, so it depends on what the song wants. Mm-hmm. I've had many times where I, I've actually thought it was going somewhere, especially when it comes to length of note, like if I'm pulsing eighth notes or something like that, where yeah. I make it like almost like, you know, very not not hard, hard staccato, but enough uh-huh. to kind of like make it points on a line. Yeah. And the producer said, is like, well, that's making it very precise. I, this is more of a a lazier, swampy feel. So mm-hmm. can you can you just make them just a slightly bit longer? Mm-hmm. And I don't do much changing as far as that's the length. You know, physically, there's not much change to it. Mm-hmm. But it really does change the feel of everything. The drummer could be playing the same thing. Right, um, right. So the answer to that is I'm thinking about it quite a bit when it comes to things like that, where the I know that the length of the note is going to play a big role in how it frames the rest of the song. Yeah. Um, and I just default to what, well, what kind of song is it? What are we feeling here? What's the drummer playing? Yeah. Because a lot of times, too, if the drummer is, you know, more kind of playing more compact, as I say, like quieter, maybe he's more cross-sticking with just some, you know, just straight on the hi-hats. If, if the hi-hat is dictating, like, say, the eighth notes or sixteenths, mm-hmm. then I'm really going to make him short. If he's kind of opened up a little more or whatever and he's more of a... Um, you know, maybe hitting a little harder and the groove is more, it's still pulsing, but more bigger mm-hmm. Then I'll elongate those notes along to go with them because he's filling up space. I'll fill it up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I approach it. Right. Uh, I mean, as drummers, understanding length of note mm-hmm. and, and addressing that on the drums is important. It's a little bit more of a challenge, but if you can do it, you can open up your groove. You can, you know, consider length of note on a, staccato instrument yes hit the snare drum pop but when we think of the length of note even subconsciously or just just visualize a larger note sometimes you can draw that sound out of even a staccato drum Mm -hmm. but i feel like there's instruments especially the bass where you have a range you have rhythm melody and you have the length of note that you can do and and I mean, I'll I'll play a song with the same song with two different bass players, and and sometimes it just comes down to that length of note in that pulse, mm-hmm. eighth note pulse, or something like that. And I'm like, 
I'm sitting in with this better. You know, not necessarily where they're putting it, but just that. I, just I don't know. That was a something well, I wanted to ask you about. Oh, absolutely. And there's many examples. I mean, I use the the, the pulsing eighth note example because that's the most uh, the best illustration. It's easier to wrap your head around that. But right, the, right. the length note thing, especially with the in, uh, the interchange between bass and drums, goes with everything. Um, you know, I think of sometimes when you're just you know doing maybe an R and B thing where it's you know it, it might be like a a, a half note and then you're off on three and four and then you're in so yeah, ding, right. but what's happening you know or maybe just a, a quarter note where you're one and two you're off you're off where the snare hits yeah because if like you know especially like a maybe like a six eight field thing and you've got the hi-hat's kind of given the swing of that. Mm-hmm. But I'm hitting the downbeat with you, nice solid, just boom, you know, filling it up so much. But the moment that the snare cracks on two, you know, right. I'm off. Right. Because that right. changes, every, you know, it gives it that real kind of danceable, you know, you want to, and it also gives sonic space for the drum to come out because the drum's going to speak differently in the sonic landscape. Because if you got a bass note going along with the snare, you know what the listeners perceiving is the snare almost sounds different because mm-hmm. there's something else going on there the moment that you open it up and don't play anything give yeah. it the space yeah. all of a sudden you're like oh wow it's it's there it's mm-hmm. it's a different tonality mm-hmm. right so right. again all these things come into play with uh, as you're saying with note length of what you're going for right there's right. not a right or a wrong it's it's what's right for the song or what what's right for the vision if anything sure sure whether that be the artist or the producer right and over time that we just do things just because it's what we've it's what we've been doing it's what's well, sure. worked and you don't think about it you just do it yeah you do the thing that's like your they become those things that they call it's oh it's your signature lick your signature mm-hmm. thing your signature feel and you default to those and and sometimes they work but you know sometimes they don't yeah and people will tell you it's like it doesn't work yeah is there something in the studio that when a drummer is bringing this to the table you're like this i can wrap my head around this is great can you pinpoint what that might be something that makes your job easier that you love to hear from a drummer? Well, uh, I can give you two answers to that because they work on two different levels. One is feel, which that sounds kind of cliche, but sure. man, it is so, you know, it goes without saying, you mm-hmm. know, kind of thing. It's so important. So if, if a guy just makes it feel good, and a lot of that, and this sounds cold and calculating, but consistency. It's like if you're going to sit right on top of the beat, fine, sit it always on top of the beat. You know, that I can wrap my head around that easily. And like, that's where we're putting it. And that's the feel of the song. That's great. If you're going to make it behind the beat, make it at the same point at every same beat mm-hmm. behind, mm-hmm. behind the beat. I, no, I understand. My English is not so good. Um, <laughs> you know, that's my, my first and foremost thing when I, because for me, it's just like a drum will start playing a groove. Just yeah. goofing off, whether it be soundcheck or getting sounds in the studio, and I can just jump right in. I know right away, like not even like when they start playing. I'm like, oh, he's playing it here. No, it's just when I start playing with them, like, oh, it's right there. Yeah. It feels so good. It's just being the consistency thing, not you know, with everything that you do, just kind of keep it even. Uh, the other thing is um, 
a drummer who listens musically, musicality, because mm-hmm. uh, drums are the instrument that's easy, the easiest to get away from musicality. Mm. It's a what, very. What do you mean? Well, it's a very primeval, uh, uh, primeval, uh, primordial thing. Gotta my again these words. I gotta. I guess just turn around. We, we can source. go with primal. Primal. Thank you. That, that was the word <laughs> I was looking for. This is when you're, you know, the Spanish is getting in the way. Uh, This primal thing, it's very easy for for drums, you know, in the hands of a lesser drummer, for them to get away and not listen to things. Because they're like, well, the easy answer is like, I dictate the beat. So I'm just going to play beat and you all got to follow me. Yeah. But I love drummers who listen to everything. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that all musicians should be doing. Look, you're playing with a group of musicians. Mm-hmm. You're playing in a band. You're playing with a group of musicians in the studio, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You never want to get that report card. You remember those report cards that they would give kindergarten kids? You don't get A, B, C, D, or F. It's like, oh, Jimmy does not play well with others. Mm-hmm. You don't want that on your report card, you know? Right, right. Uh, so I always love a drummer. Like, if, if I start playing something, they'll kind of go with it you know or the guitar player is coming up with the motif and all of a sudden the drummer has built something around that motif not the i'm going to play this part and you all figure it out right you know? right right um i love playing with uh was it uh, a, a great example just because he if you listen to any of his live work or studio work he does it in ed toth mm-hmm. uh love mm-hmm. ed because ed always if you watch him like you do something the bass player goes for something he's gonna go ahead and mimic it yeah and not mimic it but kind of do a spin on it so like i did a uh i was we were doing some pat metheny stuff you know we're just being you know jazz nerds or whatever Mm -hmm. and i was taking a solo and i was just doing this little something or whatever and all of a sudden ed just picked up right on it yeah and it wasn't like it didn't sound uh, too contrived. It didn't sound like he was overplaying. It sounded like musical. Right. He right. made it fit. He wasn't overplaying. He was kind of, it was kind of his like nod and wink on like, I hear what you're doing. Right. But we're right, playing exactly. together. You right, know, right. Being inspired by something, an element that someone brings to the table and, and, and complimenting. Exactly. That, yeah. Especially for the drums because it seems like the default is for other instruments to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, especially like a guitar player or a lead instrument or piano will follow mm-hmm. the vocal line mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. uh the bass won't necessarily do that as much but i found situations where i'm like i'm gonna do that and yeah. the moment i've put it in the right. right place it's everybody just goes wow that's right. what it needed right. and that's not to say that you can just create this this almost uh, like a stagnant uh groove an element a, a base a foundation for someone to play around to create some sort of uh, syncopation or uh you know playing over the bar line and let the drums play you know i mean there's exam- great examples of bonham doing that just playing oh, yeah. this consistent groove while this kind of permutation keeps going there's even a great story about uh, erskine when he was recording with um weather report and they were tracking and uh something uh, zawanal does and he's playing mm-hmm. this riff and so he catches the riff and his playing it right with him right with him almost kind of like what you say and he's like yeah man this is this is like his first session oh yeah with them and uh and he could they go back in the control room and listen and zawana goes uh, hey you hear that and and erskine's like yeah get ready because this is gonna be awesome he goes don't do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but again that goes with that whole thing of like what's the vision you have to you have to all these tricks right. of the trade have to be appropriate well in and in pop music if we could just kind of this encompassing yeah. term that it covers you know country and rock and all this just just a, a popular western music not necessarily jazz which has a lot of back and forth interplay 
interplay. But in pop music, when there is a little bit of interplay that goes on, it shows that the drummer is listening. He's reacting to something that the bass or the guitar or the vocalist is doing. You're like, that's musicality. Yeah. And and I was gonna I was gonna kind of differentiate that that say or, or put these questions in two subgroups like in the studio in live. But I'm guessing your answer is the same live. Yes, I would definitely say you like to hear in a drummer. Right. The very 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 similarly. I would say again with the consistency thing. That's always my thing. Yeah. Uh, with with timing, um, but also with live, uh, it's if you're replicating a part. Um, whether or not you played it or not, because that, that's a whole other category. Because a lot of, especially like the the more established acts, you know, the drummer necessarily didn't play on the record, right? And right. depending on what the you always want to do what the artist wants in this case, right, because sometimes right. you do have some some uh, some leeway to make it your own. Mm-hmm. But even when you're making your own, you still have to honor that part. Yeah. Because the audience, you know, as much people like, oh, the audience doesn't know better. Yes, they do. Yeah, you know, if, yeah, yeah. and they might not necessarily be able to pinpoint if something is is different or wrong, but they'll they'll know. They'll know, right? Uh, especially with with a drum feel. So you want to yeah. honor it. Uh, but what I look for in a live drummer again is the consistency and also being attentive. Just being again that whole thing of um, even if you're playing. A steady groove, uh-huh. like even even if you're doing a bottom thing, you're just laying the bed. Which sometimes that's the best thing to do. You're la- you're making the platform for everybody else to launch off of, and it mm-hmm. feels great. Uh, you still want to be aware of what's going on around you. Uh, in other words, like uh, live, there's a couple times where I've you know if I'm the musical director of an artist or whatever, and I'm having to cue things, you know, almost like with my bass neck rock star style, kind of like <laughs> yeah, one of these. Yeah. But you know, it's still, it's just being aware of what's going on. So. You heads know, up. I, heads up. And I've had drummers uh, in particular where you're trash canning an ending, and they're doing the big, and I'm giving them a second to do it. But sometimes I'm like, okay, it's a little long. Let's let's cut it off. But by the time it's there, they've da- now done their long tom fell. They're down at their floor tom, and they're, for whatever reason, looking this way, and maybe even looking down. And I'm like, I'm over, everybody's over here. And meanwhile, everybody, including the artist, is like, kind of cut it off, cut it off. But you're still, you know, showing off. And then they come around, and then it's the big crash at the end. You know, that can, you know, it, it'll drive me crazy. But that'll get you fired. You know, an artist will be like, enough's enough. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and thankfully, like in those cases where I've seen it, you know, I've said, hey, dude, just heads up. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And it's fixed. It's right, not an right, issue. Right, 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 right. But that's one of those things where I look for is just, you know, the heads up thing. And that's why even with me, it's like in a live gig, if, if I can at all possible not have charts up there. I don't have charts. Not because it's a, hey, look at me. I memorized it. It's a, I want to be able to communicate with everybody because there's things that happen in the heat of the, of live. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in the trenches. Something's going to change. Something mm-hmm. goes awry. Something happens. Something, right. the PA goes down. Or even if you have charts, yeah, look ahead, see where you're going. Okay, look, I got 16 bars of solo. There's nothing changing here. Yeah. We've got to push third bar into the and then in the next course i can get my head out of this chart i know well, what's course. going on and not only right. that that's something that was taught to me even like in in school band in fifth grade totally. you know they they teach you reading the music and watching the band director they're like you know he's like pick your head up 
Right. You know, right. because if I cut you off, you better stop. Right. right. You know, and so he taught, like, that's, this is a thing you learn as a musician. Mm-hmm. You learn to read ahead, mm-hmm. you know, kind of plan, go like, all right, there's the stanza. I know what's happening. Okay, cool. Kind of keep your eye up. Okay, the next stanza, look up what's next. Got it. Okay, cool. You know, mm-hmm. you always want to kind of mm-hmm. be aware of your surroundings. Gotcha. So not just looking at a, a musical director of any variety, but looking at your fellow musicians. Yeah. You know, the cohesion. I think you you kind of got into this a little bit with the whole trash canning thing. I, I kind of have the opposite issue. I I just I do very little at the end of trash canning. I'm like, just we're done. Yeah, <laughs> and, and sometimes it catches people. Like, oh wait, you are done. <laughs> Um, I've actually been told just play a little bit more. <laughs> oh, see, they go like more. <laughs> so the um, is there anything that sabotages? the session or a live gig that you've noticed that that a drummer might do that you're like this isn't this isn't good well uh kind of the opposite of what i was saying before too you know it's like the um uh the other thing too that i didn't talk about as far as uh drummers and musicality is dynamics because you were saying like okay it's a it's by nature a staccato instrument Especially right. a snare drum. I mean, obviously, you hit a tom, there's a little of a tone, an after ring, right, right. and you have those things working for your cymbal crash where it dies out. Um, but dynamics is a big thing, too. And mm-hmm. I've just noticed, like, certain drummers, uh, what really separates the men from the boys is their ability to shift the dynamic range based on what the song is dictating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was, uh, I had done the, uh, I was kind of the house bass player for Rich's Drummers Weekend that he's done That's the last right. pu- couple yeah. of years. Yeah. And the first one that I did, it was Liberty. DeVito, <laughs> which Liberty, I was so happy to hear him. It's like he touched on this topic and he's like, okay, guys, here's musicality 101 for drums. You know, he talked about Angry Young Man or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, what's the, what's the title? It's Angry. How do you think I'm going to play it? Angry. So more dynamically frenetic. Yeah. Uh, and I love drummers who are musical that way. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the one thing that drummers can do right out of the gate to bring more musicality into their playing Mm -hmm. is dynamic shifts, Mm -hmm. but not overdoing it. Obviously you have to kind of learn how to regulate yourself Mm -hmm. because sometimes in a live gig dynamics can, can get a little washed out. Right. You know, as you know, it's like, it's tough to play super quiet and super loud, especially if your engineer is not on point, especially the rest of the band's not following on this. But in the studio, definitely you have that, uh, that feasibility, but knowing what, how to do it. What advice would you give to young and beginning drummers? Do as much as you can. The simple answer is just do. Hmm. Uh, put yourself, avail yourself to as many situations as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about briefly of like some of the effects, the positive effects that could be if you just do it might lead to something else. There's always that element. Right. But right. from a purely musicianship standpoint, avail yourself to as many different and as diverse situations as possible. Yeah. Even if you feel that that's not in your wheelhouse, mm-hmm. or I should say specifically if you think it's not in your wheelhouse, you jump in and you do it. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it's it, there's so much to gain if your vocabulary is broader. Mm-hmm. Than just what you do. Obviously, there's certain things that you feel a certain comfort zone, like like you know, like comfort food or whatever. There's a reason. It's it's not necessarily the best thing for you, but it's what you know and you like. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a rock player. I'm a jazz player. I'm a this. Where that that's great. But 
so many different things that you can do and get into situations where it's a complete 180 from what's normally you mm. that you stand to learn. Even if you completely fall flat on your face and you go into your practice room and you say, all right, well, I got to do this uh, Latin jazz gig or whatever. And that's both Latin and jazz. Both are completely not my wheelhouse. This person would say, um, go do it. Because at the end of the day, it's like, look, you're a good musician. Mm-hmm. You have the basic skill sets to make yourself a better musician is go learn that. Right, right. You know, and once you do and you practice it, yeah. you'll be surprised all of a sudden you're not so bad as you thought you were on it. And you have a whole different vocabulary to draw from yeah. to implement, especially drummers. Drummers are great with this where they can take something that they learned a rhythmic piece out of a Latin thing and incorporate it into rock and roll or yeah. incorporate it into right, country. Yeah, for you, sure. And you probably can cite a million examples. And it just becomes this thing like, man, so-and-so had this very cool look he did or whatever. And nine, oh, dude, I stole that from you know Tito Puente or whatever. You know? right, right. Something like that. So, I mean, the young drummers really, because it's so easy. And this was the case when we were younger, too. What type of music we listen to or publicly admit to listening to is so much part of our of our identity. Hey, you said Indigo Girls, man. Exactly. Like, <laughs> I would have never said that in a million years. No. Oh, by the way, that record, I found it. Uh, it's called All, All That, that we, we Let, let in. in. You found Okay, that's the one. No, no. I remembered it because I do have that record. Yeah, that's the one where like you can tell everybody's having a good time making that record. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Peter, I love Peter Collins, produced it as well. That's crazy. Um, I didn't know he did that. Yeah, he did that one. Um, so... Uh, when we're younger and especially, you know, when we're trying to find ourselves, you know, because, and a lot of us were social outcasts, we want to call that, but we still had our friends or our groups mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the identity was like, oh, he hangs with the, the metal guys or he hangs with the, you know, the pop kids or whatever. You mm-hmm. notice like how many times it it's equates to a style of music because yeah. it's part of the vernacular of youth and, and everything right, else. Sure. It just permutates who we are. So, so many people will not avail themselves, especially like if, like when I was growing up, I grew up in, in central Florida, mm-hmm. in rural Florida, well, not rural, but smaller town Florida. And country was there, but mm-hmm. like the rock kids would, I would never sully myself to listen to country mm-hmm. and not realize like, dude, how much you could draw from that and mm-hmm. how much music right, history right. is Being there mm-hmm. and how much things as a drummer you can learn, right, feel, right. And, oh. No idea. Um, and subsequently, some of those kids wouldn't listen to some jazz or something else. Or, yeah. You know, I, I grew up with, uh, you know, my family being from where they were, the, 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 the Latin music and the salsa and all that stuff. And merengue specifically was just part, I just listened to it. It's, it's part of my DNA because by osmosis. Sure. That's what I heard in the household and in yeah. my grandma's house and stuff. Mm-hmm. So subsequently, when I got hired to play that stuff here in Nashville, I'm like, I hadn't really played it professionally. Yeah. But then I go to listen to learn it. I, I had it because I knew where the feel was. Right. It was like, oh, yeah, here it is. Boom. Yeah. Um, that's what they could stand to do, really. I mean, there's so many kids that just don't want to listen. I'll listen to this guy or they get hung up on one guy. You know, or you had one style. Or one, one style. They're, they're like, my hero is this. My, I'm, I, you know, we were kids. Like, my hero is Alex Van Halen. My hero is Neil Peart. My hero is this, whatever. And that's that's it. And they become like almost a clone of that. Mm-hmm. And that's great to have those elements. Get the best of the best, and but make it your own. Right. Uh, so now that you've listened to, you know. Say Neil Peart. Okay, great. You you know you can play Y Y Z backwards and forwards or whatever. Go pay, go play Black and Back in Black. Yeah. I mean, there's you think oh well that's that's dumb and easy. No no yeah. no no. There's a feel to it. Just go yeah. ahead, sit down, yeah. play with it. Right. 
See if you can play it as easy, right. as, as consistent as he does. No, I needed that advice when I was 17 years yeah, old. Yeah, oh, dude, I think we all did. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or Bonham is a great example. Totally. Because I love Bonham. Bonham, you, you think of like, oh, that's just the simplest of, you know, kick. I'm like, dude, then he flips around the beat. The you thing know, about Bonham, so though, cool. is he, he encompasses elements of both. Things yes. that yeah. it's difficult to do, like trying to cover something that Neil did. Right. But something as simple, but has extreme pocket. Well, that's the thing is we yeah. equate what's harder, what we equate, in, and this is goes with every instrument, but really with drums, what we equate as to being difficult and hard is facility. Mm-hmm. You know, meaning I can play faster, mm-hmm. you know, or I can play more notes, or I can do this polyrhythm, or I can play Polynesian Nightmare without thinking about it, or something like that. <laughs> Told you, uh, but uh, you know it's it, but seventeen toms exactly. Flam rest, flam rest. Um, but the thing that it's just as hard to make something feel correctly or get a certain feel, like a, a, a country swing, to get mm-hmm. that thing to feel right, oh, no. is harder than you think. Like go oh, no. sit down and play that. It's like wow, you're okay. You're not sitting in the right place. Try it again. Try it again. Mm-hmm. Try it again. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people, especially in, in youth, equate the, well, if I can play these fast licks or do whatever, then that's the hard stuff. Then I'm good. I'm like, well, no, that just means you can do that. Yeah. You yeah. know, what makes somebody good is that you can do that plus that, plus that, plus that. What advice do you have for experienced players? Almost the same thing in a lot of regards of yeah. avail yourself to other situations that are maybe out of your wheelhouse. Experienced mm-hmm. players, um, in the live world, especially if you're with a particular group, mm-hmm. um, let's take uh, here. Here's a good example because we had this conversation recently. Troy Lachetta, yeah, uh, from Tesla. He's yeah. been in Tesla for thirty some odd years. Yeah, um, and we had done some work together, and he had just done this. You know, he's known for Tesla, and he, he's John Bond was a huge influence, and it's reflective in his style of playing, which is great. But then it's like, you know, he wanted to improve himself as well. He's always seeking to improve himself or whatever. But he never wanted to, when he got called for a professional situation, meaning like, hey, man, can you come do this uh, this jazz gig or this uh, this like old school country thing or whatever, even though he's never done it in his entire career and, you know, he's been around for many decades now. You know, he was at first very hesitant to go like, ah, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. But then he finally realized, like, I won't grow. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a seasoned veteran and, you know, he's been an influence for other drummers. He's already at that point to where other drummers look up to him, where he's their totally, guy. Totally. And he's like, well, now that I'm that guy, what can I do to become more of? of Which is player? interesting because yeah. he can cover Earl Palmer. He can do yeah. this, you know, Keith Emerson tribute well, and play all that stuff. Well, that's what I was getting at. That was that was my prime example because he got uh, Mark Benia, who is uh, an LA guy who was Keith Emerson solo band's band uh, yeah. band leader, if you will. And you know, uh, um, Mark Benia had worked with Toy Matinee, if you remember that band or not. That little side project that was going on for a while. Yeah, o- uh, only from Troy's interview. Exactly, he might have mentioned uh-huh. that or whatever. Right, right. So, you know, he had done some stuff in New Troy, and then all of a sudden he's like, "Hey, dude." I want you. I want you to do this Keith Emerson thing and basically be Carl Palmer, yeah. um, you know, to play these Emerson stuff. But not only that, you're going to play along with an orchestra, right? And Troy was like, "What?" Right. His first is like, "Why are you calling me?" Yeah. I mean, like you know, and he was one of a handful of other drummers or a couple other drummers like Vinny. 
Yeah. And Greg Bissonette that were going to be there as well. Exactly. So it's like, so Troy thought to himself, he's like, that's Vinnie Cagliuta and Greg Bissonette and these are seasoned studio guys who've done a variety of different things. So Troy's like, I get that. I don't get why you're calling me. But he actually tried to fight him on it. Go like, dude, I don't know if I'm your guy or whatever. And Mark, you know, to his credit, like, dude, if you weren't, I wouldn't have called you. And Mark's a pretty tough guy. I mean, he's not going to, you know, put anybody... But Troy had to kind of mentally go, you know what? The only way I'm going to grow is if I do this. I can easily talk my way or talk somebody into not hiring me, mm-hmm. but I better go do this. Right. And he did it. I've got the record. He made this, this yeah. album, yeah. which is great. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, man, can you play Tarkus? He's like, yeah, I had to do it. Here it is. You know, oh my gosh. So as far as experienced players goes, I mean, depending on who you're talking to, because a lot of experienced guys get it. You know, and continue to grow, and can, and don't just stop and don't rest on their laurels. I guess rest, don't rest on your laurels. Right. You know, right. there's, there's, I've seen other players who have, and all of a sudden, for one reason or another, their gig is gone, uh, whether that be an art, a longtime artist gig or a band gig, for whatever reason, for it's whatever gone. reason it is, it's just not there anymore, which could happen to anybody, and because they didn't take the opportunity or just choose not to they're kind of stuck they're just like all right well you could get another gig or another thing to do that one thing right but there's a broader world out there there's so much to learn man and i have these moments uh, every every week you know like you said experienced players keeping an open mind mm-hmm. to new things but this is helpful, man. We covered so much stuff that uh, is going to be so helpful, I think, for uh, for myself and for so many different players. That, I, I hope so. Because we, we play with bass players all yep. the time. Yeah. You got to yeah. make the bass player happy, too, you yeah. know. But, dude, I so appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you for Taking having the time. me. Really we really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. So there you have it. There's my conversation with Luis. We needed to cover some ground that we don't normally cover when we're speaking with drummers. And I, I appreciate Luis taking some time to speak to me about this. He is only the second bass player we've talked to uh, on the podcast, but um, he just has worked with so many different people and I love his playing and uh, he's just happy to share and, uh, and, and, and get into the conversation of music and drums and all these things uh, as long as I've known Luis. Early in the conversation, we talked about his family that uh, I didn't include in the podcast, but he's very proud about uh, the way he's, he and his wife have built uh, this family uh, with two adopted kids and, uh, and one uh, th- through natural childbirth that they've created and the balance that he maintains uh, with uh, being a full-time musician and uh, raising a family. Uh, as you can guess, he's very proud of what's been accomplished with that. My thanks as always goes to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance and stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. For those of our listeners who have participated on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash working drummer, your contribution has helped us take care of our web hosting fees uh, for 2018. So we thank you so much for that. Uh, the last couple weeks, we have moved some Working Drummer Podcast shirts, and I appreciate everyone that has shown interest and bought a shirt. We have uh, more in stock. Please go to workingdrummer.net and find those on there. They make a great Christmas gift. Anyways, uh, thanks again so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.